American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. The future of maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Welcome back to the American Maritime Podcast, powered by Bigwig Podcast. We're glad to have you aboard. I'm your host, Sada Fuentes, and today we're very excited to welcome Mike Stevens, Chief Executive Officer of the Navy League of the United States and 13th Master Chief Petty Officer of the United States Navy. Mike, welcome. Thanks, Sada. It's great to be here. We're happy to have you. you. Uh, so to start off, talk, tell us about yourself. Uh, I mentioned that you are MCPON, the Master, 13th Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Tell us what that means. Well, yeah, I'll spare you the, you know, day from birth until now, <laughs> right? Oh. But uh, no, I, I joined the Navy out of uh, the state of Montana in 1983. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you fast forward the tape. Uh, I was an aircraft mechanic, helicopter crew chief. And then the Navy promoted me out of fun and put me into, you know, management and leadership roles. And in 2012, I had the, the good fortune of being selected as the 13th Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy by then Chief of Naval Operations John Greenert. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked for him for a few years. And then when Admiral John Richardson took over as the Chief of Naval Operations, I finished out my time with him. Uh, after I retired from the Navy, I went to work for a company in Pittsburgh. It was a military marketing company that supported veterans' employment and military spouse employment, and eventually became the CEO of that organization. Uh, my wife wanted to leave, mm -hmm. wanted to come to D.C., so I left that position and once again had the good fortune of being selected to be the uh, chief executive officer for the Navy League of the United States. and. January will make uh, five years for me at that organization. That's great. Well, thank you. What a career uh, dedicated to service. Uh, we really appreciate you serving your nation, everything that you did thank in you. the Navy. And it's so unusual to have someone coming from a landlocked state mm -hmm. like Montana caring about uh, the Navy and the sea services and devoting uh, his career to that. So it's really wonderful to see and how uh, the sea services affect the whole nation, not just yeah. places near the water. Thank you. So tell us a bit about the leadership lessons you learned as Master Chief Petty Officer and what you learned about service and the importance of national security to our country. Sure. So, you know, I think the greatest leadership lesson you learn is, number one, is just humility, mm -hmm. right? Recognizing that uh, you're only as gonna, you're only going to be as successful or have a degree of success as the people around you. Uh, and then understanding that, um, the or understanding the sacrifice that, uh, you know, those young men and women make to ensure um, that, it, for me, that organization, the United States Navy was able to carry out its mission. And it's not just the service members, it was the families. Um, you know, I started out as a young sailor, right? Mm -hmm. I understood um, those challenges and those sacrifices. But once you enter into a senior leadership role and you see it more broadly, holistically, um, it really does, it really does humble you. You just, you ask yourself all the time, where do we get such people? that are willing to do such things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one of the big lessons for me. Uh, so I, I think I could summarize that by saying, uh, to me, the most important thing to recognize in a leader in any organization is the people. Mm -hmm. uh, we say that sometimes tongue in cheek, um, but, but it's true. It's true, yeah. right? And, and I'm experiencing that right now at the Navy League of the United States with this amazing staff that we have and uh, the work that they're able to do with so few people. 
And I just experienced that this morning as we held one of our special topic breakfast series. Uh, and to see them pull it all together and do it with such uh, grace mm-hmm. and professionalism, I just stand back sometimes and count my blessings. Great. That's great. You're very, you're very lucky. You've got a great, you pulled together a great team over the Navy League. And for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit about the Navy League? It's a continuation of service. It's another service organization. Uh, tell us more about uh, the organization itself. Yeah. So if I could just take about an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I can talk about the Navy League all day. <laughs> yeah. I really could because I, I, you know, my first probably two, three years in the organization, I just really immersed myself in the history of our organization. Mm-hmm by going back and reading the original minutes that started in 1902. Mm-hmm. So I won't go through all the minutes. <laughs> Appreciate that. From 1902 <laughs> till present. But um, I think it's important to understand the origins. You know, so if, if we think about the time frame, so it's 1902, mm-hmm. and shortly before that, we just came out of the Spanish-American War. Uh There's a group of of military leaders, uh, both Army at the time and Navy primarily, because the first president of the Navy League of the United States was General uh, Benjamin Tracy, Mm -hmm. and he was a Army Army general. Army man, yeah. (laughs) Medal of Honor recipient from the Civil War, but because of his experience, he understood, uh, as an Army general, he understood the significance of maritime power. Mm -hmm. So... At the time, the Naval Order of the United States had the ability to convene, and so they brought together a group of prominent uh, civilian and military leaders that had interest in the maritime space. And uh, at the New York Yacht Club in New York City, uh, they sat down and they said, you know, uh, we have an issue. We don't have uh, the maritime power that we need to truly project power, uh, and to f- and to defend our our coastline, uh-huh. uh, and also to ensure that free trade and commerce was uh, going to be able to prevail. And so, the Naval Order of the United States, it wasn't their mission to do something like that. So they came to a um, conclusion that they wanted to stand up an organization, and they were going to call it the Navy League of the United States. And the first group of officers were elected. Um, Benjamin Tracy was made the first national president, which essentially is the chairman yeah. of, the, of the organization. And uh, they went off with this charter. They were incorporated, and you know the, the charter was, let's form councils mm-hmm. around the country, around the world of like-minded people that will, number one, educate Ameri- the other American citizens and also members of Congress on why it was important to have a strong maritime presence. And at the time, it was really focused around the Navy. Right. Uh, later on, the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard and the Merchant Marine Fleet came into play. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's how, we, that's how we got our roots, was it was all about being able to project power, being able to freely trade. And um, it, for them, most importantly, was just simply to protect the United States from right. other foreign powers. Right, right. It was a very vulnerable time, and so mm-hmm. it was critical to yeah. have that. Yeah, it's really interesting how, uh, you know, it started off with just the Navy, but then the Navy League expanded to encompass all the sea services. Mm-hmm. You know, a Navy League, the Navy League talks a lot about how America is a maritime nation. Like, mm-hmm. what does that mean, and how does that, uh, how does that relate to our national security? Yeah, I think um, we, you know, if people, if we don't recognize that, then we're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at um, 
the borders of the United States, right? There's only one border, the northern border, uh, that is land, land, yeah. right? And one could argue, you know, you have the Great Lakes up there, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, in many ways, the size of a sea, right? Right. And so there's lots of trade and commerce that occurs, and you know, and through a series of uh, of rivers and canals, you know, we it does end up in the ocean, right? right. The Atlantic Ocean, and one could even say the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, our ability to um, freely trade uh, with other countries is paramount to our ability to exist as a vibrant country. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all saw what that, like we had the, uh, I guess you could call it the starter kit of what it would look like during the pandemic if we didn't have that ability. I was just talking to our legislative affairs director, Luke Lorenz, on the way over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were saying, you know, why is it so hard for some people and some organizations to understand the true necessity of the maritime? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's because we've never really been put in a situation where we are completely without. Right. You know, the, the pandemic caused some slowdown, caused goods to go up a little bit, and it caused some of our shells to become less stocked. But after a period of time, short period of time, uh, at the end of the day, we were able to get what we wanted. We just had to pay more for it. Right, right. Uh, or or that maybe a little bit less sparse. Mm-hmm. But imagine, you know, years right. with empty shells and skyrocketing prices that the average uh, person couldn't afford. Um, then we would really recognize the, the true um, importance of the maritime. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it was the pandemic was really interesting because you did have that kind of backlog and slowdown. Uh, but what we saw in the maritime industry was our non-contiguous states uh, and territories like Hawaii and Puerto Rico had regular service thanks mm-hmm. to the Jones Act and thanks to the Merchant Marine and having that kind of healthy mm-hmm. uh, maritime base here, mm-hmm. um, which is also critical. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, sea lift. Um, you know, you're a Navy, you're, you're a Navy man. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that the first president was an army man because mm-hmm. it is the army stuff, right? That the Navy, that, that the, that sea lift moves. It's army's material that sea lift moves. So talk to us more about sea lift and its importance. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a civilian aspect to it and there's a military aspect to mm-hmm. it. Uh, I'll talk about the military aspect first. As Admiral uh, Jamie Fogo, who's our Dean of the Navy League Center for Maritime Strategy often says, um, your window and your ability to conduct warfare without beans and bullets coming to the fight is very limited, Mm -hmm. depending on where you're at. I think most people, you know, you could argue the point, but I think most people would say in an all-out fight, you've got about 30, no more than 60 days of supplies at your ready availability. Mm -hmm. Uh, It depends on the intensity of the fight. And so without sea lift, which is the only way to get large quantities of goods to where they need to be to carry out that fight without sea lift, um, the war's lost before it's begun. Yeah. And, you know, it really seems like uh, China is definitely learning a lot about this and thinking a lot about the importance of sea lift, the importance of maritime dominance. I know that's been an issue for the Navy League for a long time. Uh, how can the Navy and the sea surfaces counter China's attempt to really dominate shipping in the maritime industry? Uh, that's a broad question. Mm-hmm. There's many aspects to it. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, if if I'm reading the question correct, Sada, it's really about the um, maritime transportation aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, our ability to build, to crew and maintain a merchant fleet, um, I don't want to say that's a that's a a broad definition because we know that we have the ready reserve fleet. Um, Military Sealift Command has USNS ships Mm -hmm. that are constantly out there. But then you have the, you know, the civilian maritime fleet, Mm -hmm. right, that can be utilized during time of war. But our ability to have adequate numbers in both people and ships and then be able to maintain them is, I think, more important than most people really recognize. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, it's because... Things like that happen, get the attention when there when there's necessity. Right. Um, but I'm afraid to say that when we recognize that that necessity exists, if it's already not present, it's too late. Right. It's just too late. If I could just give you, you know, sailors love sea stories. Right? Please do. Yes. I mean, I, I had a, a somewhat, uh, I had an exposure to the importance of sea lift when I was a second class petty officer Mm -hmm. during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So my unit, which did airborne mine countermeasures, we packed all of our helicopters and people and crew and we put it in the back of an Air Force C-5. Mm -hmm. And then we flew in country. And when we got there, we only had what we brought with us and you can only put so much stuff on a plane, right? right? Uh, And then I got the opportunity to see sea lift in action. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were delivering these goods in different ports in the Middle East, um, primarily in Jebel Ali. hope I said that right. Every sailor says it different. <laughs> but when I saw these sea lift uh, vessels coming in and offloading this cargo, mm-hmm. the amount of cargo that they were able to offload in a relatively short period of time was really mind-blowing. I mean, almost as far as the eye can see, there was ammunition and food and supplies, and these ships were coming in one after the other. And I don't know the whole story behind it, but I do know that when we first started the mobilization, Mm -hmm. uh, there was real concern about the shortage and the inability to bring the supplies over, and it took longer than we wanted it to. Right. Uh, and this was during a period of time where we had more sea lift capacity than we have today. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it w- frankly, it was kind of limited warfare, yeah. right? It was against an adversary that was far less superior than ours. Uh, we had control over the sea. We had control over the air. But just the challenge of getting goods there um, was difficult. Right. Right. The tyranny of distance. You have to move so much in such huge volumes. Mm-hmm. It really must have been a, a sight to see, to see those huge volumes move in. And then it's also interesting, too, that you mentioned that, you know, that first Gulf War, that was the whole world was with us. There was no opposition. We had freedom of the seas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, China has made it very clear they're investing in ports worldwide. They're dominating shipping, that they're not going to make it quite so easy for us next time, which has got to have alarm bells going off mm-hmm. in, in your head as you think about our national security. I mean, it's really fascinating if you think about it. Uh, you know, how could we possibly ignore this? Right. Right. And, and I think it's we become comfortable, yeah. right? We we get used to our daily norm, and mm-hmm. it's hard for us to imagine that daily norm getting disrupted in any significant way. 
until you wake up in the morning and you find that a one modern country has invaded another democratic country um, in the 21st century, yeah. right? And then you're thinking, well, this this is possible. I think uh, I think for a long time uh, as a nation, we've just felt ourselves to be impenetrable mm -hmm. and that we would always have this freedom to move. But now we're being crowded out. Yeah. You know, we're being crowd crowded out. We're having to share ports with people that we would consider to be less friendly. Mm -hmm. um, but the countries that are doing this, primarily China, the country that's doing this, has apparently paid attention to history, right? right? And they understand the relevance, the importance of, of maritime transportation and port infrastructure. I mean, all you got to do is look at the numbers. I think they have something like 4,500 Chinese flag vessels, and what do we have, like 1,800 or something, mm -hmm. right? So uh, they, they've recognized it. They see it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're having a difficult time recognizing it. Welcome to American Maritime Voices, your place to be heard. As part of American Maritime, you are critical to moving and securing our country. And now you can help tell the story of Maritime and be part of key decisions that affect it. American Maritime Voices was created to help you speak up, show your pride, and when needed, push back. It's free to become a voice, and we'll keep you informed of what's happening in Washington so you can help change the course of issues that matter most to you. As a voice, you'll get monthly updates, have access to podcasts and videos, and receive action alerts when your voice is needed most. The future of Maritime is in your hands, and its story needs to be told. Will you help tell it? Let's talk about shipbuilding specifically, too. Uh, another place where China is really dominant is in shipbuilding. Like they are, you know, subsidizing their ships. Navy League wrote a report about this. You know, China's subsidizing their shipbuilding industry to the billions and billions of dollars. In the United States, we do not have those kind of subsidies. So the Jones Act really is kind of the one place where you do see uh, shipbuilding innovation happen. Can you talk to us a little bit about the relationship between Jones Act, the shipbuilding industrial base, and why that matters to the other services as well? Sure. So I guess we could call the Jones Act the last line of defense, right? Mm -hmm. Because without it, um, if, if some would have their way, the ability to build and crew and maintain, uh, you know, U.S. flagships that haul goods from one port to another in the United States into Alaska and Hawaii and Puerto Rico, um, in a very short period of time, it would cease to exist. Yeah. We would just, you know, competition, price competition would force us out of business. There's, I, I fully, I mean, I'm a capitalist, right? Mm -hmm. I, I can appreciate uh, competition and so on, but this isn't fair competition. Right, Right. exactly. These subsidies create an unfair environment in this space. And you gotta ask yourself the question every once in a while, what's more important? freedom and protections that, that we enjoy in this country or to generate additional capital through an industry where you can force them out of business because they're not subsidized. Right. Mm, you know, if you don't have, if you don't have the freedom and the protections that you need to have a society like the, like America, mm -hmm. um, you know, then we're having a whole different conversation. It's not just about the Jones Act anymore, right? It's about everything else because now we are 
literally on an island, mm-hmm. right? Because we are at the behest of anybody who decides to or not to deliver goods to us. And in a time of war, as I mentioned earlier, those beans and bullets, they're not going to get there, right? Right, Because somebody, can, somebody who's a friend today may not be a friend tomorrow. Right. And people we think we're going to count on to get stuff to a particular point in place can make the decision not to. We, it's a life or death situation. We can't, we can't not have the ability to build and crew and maintain our own vessels. Right. They're just sub-industrial bases that you need to keep uh, resilient and healthy for our national security. You know, you touch on a little bit um, of what the world would be like without a Jones Act. You know, you kind of mentioned this lack of shipbuilding, this lack of, um, this lack of uh, economic resiliency that we have today, the loss of the shipbuilding industry. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about the impact on the Coast Guard, right? Because the Coast Guard inspects all those vessels. If the Jones Act were to go away, could the Coast Guard, as stretched thin and underfunded as it is now, have the capacity to inspect all these ships and keep track of all these foreign mariners? Or would that be a big challenge for them as well? I mean, as they're currently structured, I mm-hmm. would say no. Yeah. Right? That it just it's, it becomes a capacity issue. And so, you know, that ability to ensure that those ships are inspected um, just simply wouldn't be there. And, I mean, you have to think about worst-case scenarios. You know, you have uh, ships that come from countries, as I mentioned, that may not be necessarily friendly friendly to the U.S. And their ability to access inlet waterways or our ports, I Mm -hmm. mean... You don't. You just don't know. It's it's hard enough as it is. Right. Right. And so now you just kind of opened opened it up, you know, or magnified it multiple times over. Right. To who knows what kind of actors. It's really it's uh, really concerning. Uh, so for Maritime Day, uh, 2023, you wrote an article for the New York Daily News, and you had this quote in there that I really liked. Opposition to a law as important as the Jones Act is a peacetime luxury that quickly evaporates when American security is at, is at stake. Mm-hmm. So you're a veteran Navy leader. Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, what's assuming yeah. like peacetime luxury? Well, I mean, it's like it's all fun and games until someone gets their eye poked, mm-hmm. right? And it's in everyday life, as we talked about, you know, just a little bit ago, uh, in everyday life, uh, who needs the Jones Act? But that's just not the world we live in, right? Right, And as recent events have unfolded, we see that, that anything can happen at any time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll say it again, that the Jones Act is the last line of defense between us having the ability to move goods when national security depends on it and not. Right. You know, so uh, that's why the Navy League, in partnership with organizations like uh, like your SADA, um, and just a few others, because there's not a lot of people in this space that are holding back the water, right. no pun intended, right? <laughs> but that's why the Navy League is so uh, so adamant about um, supporting the Jones Act. And we've, you know, you know this, uh, you've been involved in this longer than me. Um, we jump on this every time we've, we've, we see opposition coming. And it's one of those things where you got to keep the pressure on, because as soon as you back off, there's somebody in there looking for a, a kink in your armor. Right. 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 Absolutely. No, the Navy League has been wonderful. And you've got, you know, tens of thousands of volunteers around the country, around the world who have been great at advocating to their leaders and their communities about the importance of the Jones Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all volunteers, right? These are volunteers who are doing this and stepping up. Um 
what I think makes the Navy League a little bit unique is that it does touch on all four sea services, and it sees the interplay of how the services relate to each other. Uh, so as someone who spent so much time in the Navy, and now with this Navy League perspective, what is the relationship between the Navy and the maritime industry? Um, you mentioned the shipbuilding base. Uh, what else is there that kind of brings these two sectors together? Yeah, I think we're you know uh, intrinsically connected, right? I mean, we all... That's a unique thing about being a mariner is when you're on the high seas, whether you're in a civilian vessel or whether you're in a, a military vessel, we just all become sailors, mm-hmm. right? And so you have these common interests about uh, how you operate at sea. But uh, we, you know, the Navy, the Marine Corps, uh, and the Coast Guard, you know, we all depend on one another to be able to conduct business, um, you know, on, on the oceans, on the seas, and we see that uh, largely with the civilian sector in the ability to, you know, to move goods. Mm-hmm. I mean, most U.S. ships only carry what they need for a short period of time, right? And most U.S. military bases, uh, I shouldn't say military bases, I'll say U.S. naval bases because we're always kind of located around the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, we depend on those civilian ships to be able to bring goods to our bases, uh, both warfighting equipment and also, you know, food and other products. And so I, I think in the, in, the, in the civilian sector depends on the military sector, the Coast Guard, the Marine Corps, the Navy, to make sure that those sea lines are open right. so that stuff can get there, mm-hmm. right? And then through that, we're able to have commerce. Uh, that goes back and forth. So it's kind of you got to open up the trail to build the highway, right? <laughs> and so the, the the military, in partnership with the civilian shipping industry, we keep that trail open so that we can build that commerce highway for not just it, not just the U.S. but everybody. Right. Everybody that trades freely benefits from the benefits Navy. from the U.S. Navy mm-hmm. and our ability to move goods. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, of course, too, it's also about the people. A lot of the same uh, mariners that crew Jones Act vessels are the ones who crew those Navy military sea lift command ships uh, when they're not doing it. So it's a lot of the same people at that same industrial base that's all kind of working together in the service of our nation. Yeah, you'll find you'll find uh, workers that have worked in building U.S. ships, uh, military warships will build commercial vessels, mm-hmm. uh, it's the education pipeline, it's the, it's the apprentice pipeline, uh, and then a lot of these uh, shipbuilders, they move from, you know, one side of the fence to the other. Um, we're all inter, you know, we're all interconnected. I, I just always uh, like to ask the question to people, um, without a strong U.S. military shipbuilding capability, capability, Mm -hmm. without the U.S. Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Merchant Marines, without the Jones Act, what does the world look like? Right. Like right now today, just take that all out. You know, what does the South China Sea look like? I mean, what, for that matter, what is the Indian Ocean or the Mediterranean? What does any of that look like? Because most other navies, and I say this with great respect, most other navies, um, without the ability to leverage the U.S. Navy become far less capable, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we become more capable with them, right. and they, became, they become much more capable with us, mm-hmm. right? And so our ability to weave all that together and do what we do is what 
gives the whole world its uh, stability, stability yeah. and, and ability to move goods. Yeah. We don't think about it. I don't think we always think about it that way. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? So let's talk a little bit about uh, the future, the future of the Navy League, the future of the sea services. What do you see as being some... uh, top issues or priorities going forward? Well, for us, the the staple issues or or focus will always, I think, remain the same, and that's the education and the advocacy, uh, advocating for things like the the Jones Act. So that's our core mission. Mm -hmm. And then, as you know, we have our support mission, which uh, is about uh, youth programs and uh, scholarship programs and military spouse support, those sorts of things. Uh, so I think we all, you know, and I talk to my team about this at the Navy League all the time. Is that we can do a lot of things, but we can never forget about what our core mission is, right. and that is to educate and advocate. That's what we were founded on. Sometimes it's not the uh, shiny thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things out there that people, you know, they want to get involved in, and uh-huh. it excites them, and you know, they want to they want to leap onto that. You know, uh, educating American people in Congress about the importance of a maritime, then advocating for those things, oftentimes in the, you know, I, I call it by behind the curtains work. Right. Uh-huh. Right. It's not the shiny thing, but mm-hmm. it is the most important thing that we do. So just making sure that we continue to focus on that. Yeah. Well, I know we're all very grateful to the Navy League and leading that conversation and making sure that it's not just people here in D.C. or people who have a port in their backyard uh, that are thinking about the importance of maritime power, but really talking to everyone, talking to their neighbors and making sure people know that story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really inspiring to see how just average citizens are getting involved, uh, writing their congressman about the Jones Act, uh, you know, adopting uh, adopting ships and vessels, doing commissionings. Uh, Navy League members are really inspiring in terms of everything that they do for our nation and for our sea services. It's really great to see. And then here in D.C., you all have uh, sea airspace coming up uh, in April, correct? Correct. Yeah, and I just wanted to piggyback on that. I, I do want to thank all of our members and mm-hmm. the councils out there that do the heavy lifting for the mission of the Navy League. And you know, uh, and I, you know, take this opportunity to put in a plug. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody that happens to listen to this podcast and recognizes the importance of the maritime, we would strongly encourage that they consider joining the Navy League because without our members, we don't exist. We can't do our mission. Uh, you know, the Sea Air Space Exposition that we do, I think this one coming up will be our 58th mm-hmm. uh, exposition that we've done. And what an amazing opportunity for military leaders and industry and like-minded people in the maritime to come together and talk about the things we're doing, the things that we need to do, and to showcase many of the products that are either being developed or that are already out there 
that can be beneficial in this effort that we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. it's great to have all the services come together and hear what they're saying and mm-hmm. really get away with that stovepiping and bring these thought leaders together mm-hmm. to share what they think is happening for mm-hmm. the future of the services. Yes. So we're really grateful to you all for putting that on and creating these opportunities to spread the word about the importance of the Jones Act, the Merchant Marine, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, uh, Marine Corps, all the sea services. We really couldn't be more grateful for all that you've done. And we're so grateful for your commitment to service, both for the Navy and now at the Navy League. Um, it's what a great, great career you've had. No, thank you very much. And I, at this point in my life, I couldn't think of doing anything else. Uh, Teresa says, what are you going to do when you leave the Navy League? And I said, uh, probably nothing, uh, you know, as far as work goes. I'll continue to do volunteerism. Yeah. But um, I don't Nothing know. can top that. Yeah, I don't know if I, <laughs> know if I want to uh. get involved, me personally, just everybody has their own thing. But for me... After more than 40 years of being involved in what one consider to be service, it's hard to imagine doing anything else. Right. So once I'm once I'm done as the CEO of the Navy League, I think you know I'll just double down on my efforts in the volunteer space. That's great. So yeah. a true commitment to service. Yeah. It's wonderful to yeah. see. Thank you. Um, before we wrap up, do you have any? Before we close this episode of American Maritime Podcast, do you have any final thoughts about the Jones Act, Merchant Marine, or the Navy League that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, what I would like to share with our audience is a little bit about you, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, you talk to me about service, and you know, I, I know I, I've only known you for about five years, but I've known people have known you much longer than mm-hmm. that. And Asada, there's, you know, no one I can think of that's more passionate about what we're talking about today or has committed themselves more than than you have. Uh, and, you know, for the, our listeners, Asada is also <laughs> a national senior vice president and and is the uh, national vice president or yeah, national vice president of our legislative affairs department at the Navy League as well. So you don't just you just don't do it as your job. Right. You also put your. You know, your money where your mouth is, I too, do. Right? I love it. I am very flattered. I love the Navy League. Yes, as you mentioned, I worked there for a long part of my career, and I loved it so much. I kept doing it for free. I just love the organization and its mission and its people. So yes. oh, I'm grateful for, for the opportunities the Navy League gave me. Oh, well, so it's wonderful to have this partnership. Well, thank you for your continued service with the League. Thank you so much. So that's all for this episode of the American Maritime Podcast, powered by Big Wig Podcast. We encourage you to share this show. And also, go to AmericanMaritimeVoices.org and sign up to be a voice on maritime issues. Again, that's AmericanMaritimeVoices.org. Check it out. Until next time, I'm Sada Fuentes, signing off.